0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Commonwealth Club program called Daughters of Kobani. I'm Eddie Simonian, the vice chair of the club's member-led Middle East Forum. We invite you to please visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org or YouTube chat and please submit your questions for today's Q&A period. Now I'd like to introduce our distinguished speaker. Gail shamak Lamon is a bestselling author and adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Today, she will discuss her new book, The Daughters of Kobani, a story of rebellion, courage, and justice. This is an extraordinary story of Kurdish women who defeated ISIS in Syria, fighting alongside US special forces while breaking longstanding cultural norms. Please welcome Gail.
0: Thank you, such a pleasure to be with you. It's a real privilege to share this story. Um, this is a book that was three years in the making. And it's really the uh, story of the women who handed the Islamic State its first defeat as part of a fighting force that stood up in the showdown of a town uh, called Kobani on the border between Syria and Turkey. And really and truly, the thing that struck me the most when setting out to write this story was uh, that. It started with a question I couldn't answer, which for me is the hallmark of a great story. My question was, how in the world did one of the most far-reaching experiments in women's equality come to be on the ashes of the fight against the Islamic state, created by women who truly fought ISIS room by room, house by house, street by street, town by town as America's ground force? for a half decade. And the thing that struck me so much when I first heard about this story was that it had uh, everything that an untold history must have to capture your imagination. It's a military story about special operations community in the United States and its quest to work with local partners on the ground who were willing to take the fight to ISIS at a time when ISIS had had not one defeat. It's a story of women which isn't deeply relevant to our times as it's about women who rewrote the rules governing their lives and who really reshaped the way an entire generation thought about what women's work is. It's a politics story about America and its hunt for a policy when it came to the tragedy known as the Syrian civil war. And as ISIS surfaces, how are the Americans going to counter the rising force of the Islamic State at a time when U.S. forces absolutely could not politically be deployed on the ground. And then it's also, I think, a story of media, because the truth is that the reason why we know about the fight for Kobani and the valiant stand of this David versus Goliath force that truly had women's rights and women's equality right at the heart, of who it was, right? So this is truly a David versus Goliath story. Only David is also a woman. This story also happened because it happened right on the border with Turkey, which meant that the world's cameras could capture it in plain sight and catapult this story that was happening all around Syria. As then uh, national security deputy national security advisor Tony Blinken said, there were K- Kobanis going on all across Syria and Iraq uh, all the time. But this one was captured by cameras, and I wanted to understand how did all of these factors come together to put this very far-reaching experiment in grassroots participatory democracy with women's equality right at the center onto the global stage? Because those very same women, with women's emancipation right at the heart of who they were, came right up against the men of the Islamic State, for whom buying. And selling women was a central part of who they were and what they did. It was Shakespearean. It is Shakespearean in its reach and its breadth. You could not invent this story if you tried. And so I spent uh, more than two years, I guess three years, you know, in COVID, who remembers truly, uh, assembling this story that is taking place in the U.S., taking place in northern Iraq and certainly we enter the world of these women who come together to stop the islamic state on the ground in northeastern syria i want to start by just talking to you a little bit about who the people you will meet in the daughters of kobani are there are four women who we really follow from from the start of their journeys all the way and it is a little bit personal for me my family's from the region so when i first heard that there were women leading in battle against the Islamic State and leading not just women, but men also, and who also had the deep respect of U.S. Special Operations Forces, who had really spent their entire adult lives, men who had spent their entire adult lives at war on behalf of the United States. I thought, not only is this story incredible, but it's incredible it's happening there. You know, did, I just could not imagine the journey they would have had to have taken to not just say to their families, I'm going to decide my future, but also I'm going to take up arms so that you can decide your future, so that you won't live under the yoke of the Islamic State. So... Let me introduce you to the characters, take a step back into how uh, this set the stage for the story. And then I look forward to our Q&A make this much more interactive. Uh, In COVID world, I find it's much more uh, engaging for all of you if we actually have a conversation. So the women you meet are some of the most extraordinary people I've had the privilege of meeting anywhere in the world. There's Rojda who ends up becoming the Americans interlocutors in the effort in the military campaign to rout ISIS from its so-called capital of Raqqa. And Rosha is somebody who's very quiet, introverted, loves Brazilian soccer, loves Maradona, and loves books, and ends up giving up her dreams of becoming a pharmacist uh, to protect her neighborhoods when the Syrian civil war starts. As a girl, she... Uh, dares to play soccer in her grandmother's village and her uncle dresses up in a white sheet as a ghost to scare her and her cousins from doing something that is so shameful for their family as playing soccer out in the open in her grandmother's village. We follow her all the way to standing with U.S. special operations in Raqqa, in the command centers, figuring out who goes where uh, and commanding thousands of forces in the effort to stop ISIS's territorial caliphate. Then there's Nareen, who so many readers already have written to me about. It's a young one, you know, just so serene in her demeanor, uh, who as a teenager, her parents said, you can't go to university because that's not okay for girls. Uh, you cannot uh, marry who you love because your uncle already has chosen for you. And then we follow her by the time she comes to this all women's fighting force. She starts out as a driver for Nauruz, who's one of the other leaders we'll meet and ends up leading forces to retake her hometown from ISIS and having girls come up to her and looking at her as a role model and her uncles calling her uh, for advice. And then there's Azima, who is this swashbuckling character, but very much larger than life, joke cracking, chain smoking, non-ISIS fearing, uh leader who always leads from the front and the thing that struck me about her is that ISIS grazed her with a bullet. They shot her. And yet she's still, even with an ISIS bullet near her heart, she goes to Kobani to the press conference at the end of the battle for Kobani and says, I want the world to know that women were part of handing this defeat, this first ever defeat to the Islamic State. And finally, there's Nouruz, who is uh, you know, somebody who has this demeanor that's incredibly reassuring when you first meet her. And it's almost hard to remember, if you meet her out of battle, what she uh, faced in war. She grew up with a mother who never got to go to school, never got to be literate, who said, make sure your life isn't like mine. And here we follow her all the way on her own journey to becoming a leader who, when her forces in Kobani, they are low on food. They are low on weapons. They are low on ammunition. They have almost no training compared to the men of ISIS who've come to take yet another victory, but they have will. And she gets on the walkie-talkie to the women who are her frontline commanders and says, these men think you are worth nothing. Show them what you are made of, show them your value, and show them who you are and what women are capable of so that even if this is our last breath, your life will mean something. And so those are the people that we get to spend time with, along with the Americans, who, uh, from the military side and the policy side, are really desperate to make sure that ISIS is stopped. This is at a time when the fear for the U.S. homeland was extreme, and no one knew who was going to put their lives on the line on the ground, doing the kind of terribly difficult fighting that ISIS forced its enemies to make. This was a fighting force from the Islamic State that Mind every room that kidnapped civilians that has showed it was capable of everything. And then finally, just in conclusion, I want to take a step back to remember where we were at the time of this war. This 2011, the Syrian civil war, which starts as a peaceful protest from young people, then morphs into a fight against extremism as groups from around the world come in and take advantage of the vacuum left. By the Syrian civil war and the atrocities of the Assad regime remain uh, escalating day by day. And into this, the Syrian Kurds, who are this ethnic minority that seizes on the openings provided by the Syrian civil war to govern itself, right? For the first time to be able to publish in its own language, name its children what it would wish, uh, celebrate its holidays without the Assad regime uh, interfering. speak in schools the language it wishes to teach its children in without fear of retaliation, all for the first time, this group of Kurds who follows Abdullah Ocalan sitting in prison, who raids a, a, a former communist to the left of Bernie Sanders in Vermont, they put together these ideas of governance, New England style, town hall, participatory democracy that will have women at its center and environmental awareness at its heart. And all of this unlikely story gets catapulted onto the world stage by the men of the Islamic state who intersect with the Americans looking for a way to stop them. And it all comes to be in the town of Kobani in 2014, when ISIS is on a glittering string of victories and finally meets a Syrian Kurdish force that is not as proficient or as skilled or as armed as it is, but that has the heart to make a stand against it. And that is when the Americans get involved. And that's really uh, when our story starts. So with that, I very much look forward to our conversation. Thank you.
1: Gail, thank you so much. Uh, um, I want to thank you, firstly, for bringing this to light. Uh, I was raised in uh, the Middle East, but it's one of those stories that I really needed to experience firsthand and I really needed to read. And as trivial as this sounds, but I truly felt attached to Rojda when she starts talking, because of soccer and because of Maradona, it's, it's, uh, uh, the legend who passed away last year, but it's, uh, these, maybe these small, small trivial parts about someone's life that truly connects people. And I think it's such an amazing story for you to bring, because I'm sure when someone's reading it, they're going to find something within the lives of these women that they're going to say, Oh, that, you know, I feel connected to this person. So truly, uh, I, I want to thank you on that. Uh, I do want to start off, uh, by discussing uh, Ocalan, or Ocalan, uh, as you would pronounce him. So it's, it's very interesting how you discuss, and you just touched on it, but also in your book about how he was influenced by uh, a philosopher from Vermont. Uh, and can we, can we discuss, maybe talk a bit more about his background, his life, and what really transformed him? And I do want to touch about Emancipation of Women. I do want to touch about his sister. And because it's a bigger story in the Middle East as well, where I think it truly needs to be brought to light about forced marriages and how it's a catalyst for a lot of women to want to just break free. And the the simplest thing of deciding who to love is not even an option for a lot of these women.
0: Yes. And so Abdullah Ocalan is a figure who the adjective controversial always attaches to him. Uh, For NATO ally Turkey, he is considered uh, enemy number one. He is sitting in a Turkish prison for creating, uh, for founding or co-founding the the Kurdistan Workers Party, or PKK, uh, which launched uh, both uh, militant and then also later peaceful push for Kurdish self-rule. His ideas, once he is in prison, he starts reading the words of Murray Bookchin. And Abdullah Öcalan for people who have not been able to speak their language, celebrate their holidays, be recognized as citizens, marry who they love, uh, in terms of the in the celebration that could be public in their with their music and their holidays, and really moves people to follow his ideals and his ideas. And this group of Syrian Kurds who happens to follow Abdullah Öcalan um, is really the are, are the folks who are the most organized when the Syrian civil war begins. And the Ocalan ideas that he has been putting out over his decades in prison deeply influence them. Ocalan goes from thinking about a Kurdish nation state to really thinking about Kurdish self-rule in the way that this philosopher Murray Bookchin, who is not very uh, popularly known, but certainly deeply known within certain communities, right? So he is a uh, a fascinating story uh, of an immigrant uh, a, a, from a Jewish family who grows up really from the age of, as a child, really taking care of his mother once his grandmother dies. And he do, works all kinds of jobs, even as a boy, to support his family. He goes through his own intellectual journey from communism to uh, really being more of an anarchist, then going to this idea of social ecology, of this notion of, and he moves from New York to Vermont, and actually his former wife fights Bernie Sanders on a waterfront development project in Burlington. So for those of you progressives, uh, out there, this is very much a line of thought that goes through this book. And, uh, Bookchin writes books that are talking about you know, that, um, no high, a world in which there is participatory democracy without hierarchy and with true care for the environment, right? He's talking about the environment decades before. People were really talking about talking about the perils of technology decades before we were really contending with this and talking about the importance of eco-consciousness where natural resources were shared among people very early. So his ideas, as Ocalan reads them in prison, intersect with Ocalan's notion that the Kurds cannot be free until women are free. And they get really put into place in a slice of northeastern Syria, that these Kurdish forces and the armed wing that's this called the People's Protection Units, and then later the Women's Protection Units, which form, who are the characters that we you know, the, the women that we will meet in this book. Um, they are formed really with the ideas of Ochon inspiring and, and really giving them the spine of the ideology that they follow.
1: This is uh I truly, when I was reading about uh, Ochelan in the background I honestly never knew this so thank you for bringing this to light because as you mentioned I was quite surprised to see the connection all the way to Vermont and uh, to Bernie Sanders as well um, to I also want to touch base that this is very personal for you. you you did mention how your family's from the region but maybe as in as much details as you want to go into could we discuss how you had your own battles as well with gender roles within your family?
0: So my, uh, my father used to joke that it was, it was, you know, nature answering. It was the universe answering that he got me as a daughter, right? Uh, so, and actually the book, uh, for those of you who are, are looking at the book right now or about to pick it up, uh, you'll see in the dedication, it says to Eli, who taught me about uh, pistachios, Marlboro Reds backgammon and the proper taste of watermelon. Because for those of you from Middle Eastern families, my father was always complaining about American watermelon, not having the same sweetness uh, that he grew up with, even though he was a very, very proud Floridian uh, to the end, very much uh, loved South Florida and stayed there. Um, When I was a child, a girl, my this moment is in the introductions. The introduction of the book is really about me trying to figure out, could I do justice to this story? at a time when I had already written two books about the post 9-11 conflicts, and quite honestly, was exhausted from trying to make Americans care about their wars. And one of the things I thought was so uh, fascinating to me was, how in the world did this experiment in women's equality get created by women who fought men, who bought and sold women, in a challenging region for women? And I will say that the Middle East is home to some of the strongest women I've ever met anywhere in the world. I think that is often too rarely understood. But the challenges they face, you know, my my grandmother was married as a girl. uh, And my father once said to me once when I was giving him a very hard time about the women in his family cooking more than the men, and why couldn't men do the cooking and cleaning? He looked at me and he said, do you really think men and women are equal? And he honestly didn't mean it in a kind of rude or insulting way at all. For him, it was as if I was telling him that, you know, reindeer dance on the moon at 9 p.m. every single night. Right. It was just unfathomable from the world that he was raised in. You know, he was born in Baghdad. uh, Mother was from Baghdad. Father was from Kirkuk and lost his country uh as a boy uh because his family was the wrong faith. So you know, I wanted to, to share that. I'd never shared that in a book. I'd never even really talked about my father, uh, in a book, but it did because I had just a fraction of an inkling of what these women would have faced. I think it absolutely made me even more, uh, curious to understand who they were and how in the world truly had this come to be.
1: It's uh, I think it was the perfect introduction to the book because it truly also made people connect the dots, uh, and truly understand where you're coming from. And, uh, uh, gives you legitimacy in my eyes as well to 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 talk about the story. Uh, I do want to remind our audiences that this is a Commonwealth Club program called Daughters of Kobani and that our speaker is Gail Shamak-Limon, journalist uh, and best-selling author. I'm Eddie Simonian, today's moderator. Uh, and I want to remind everybody to please enter your Q&A questions uh, via chat on YouTube or through our uh, site. Uh, I do uh, want to uh, mentioned that, uh, and and people will get this through the book. But you were on the ground over there with these women. You went there uh, against the advice of many people. Uh, I, I would I would say, and uh, w- which is a, a an amazing uh, feat. Um, maybe could you discuss maybe some moments that happened there that uh, even even with war, even with the bloodshed, that just shows you the humanity of the people on the ground and these women and how they were able to lead forces that were mainly compromised of men as well.
0: Yeah, so so just to back up a little bit. So in 2013, the women who had been part of organizing in their communities to stand up at the beginning just to protect their neighborhoods, right? There was no Islamic State in 2011, 2012. But the footprints of it are beginning to form. By 2013, there are al-Qaeda-linked groups who are the predecessor uh, to uh, the Islamic State, and then comes ISIS, officially declared in 2013. And the Women's Protection Units are born in April 2013. And I asked Rojda once, why in the world did you start the Women's Protection Units? Because you already had equality, according to your ideology, right? Ochelon, Kurds cannot be free until women are free. And you already were fighting alongside men in battle. And she looked at me and she said two things. One is we couldn't let stand a world in which the ideology that said women could be property would stand. And secondly, we just didn't want men taking credit for our work. And I thought at that moment, you know, it's a book because there is not one woman who is listening, not one woman born who does not know that feeling from an instinctual gut level. Uh, And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, even in the most extreme form, right, I'm fighting ISIS. It's still the same, the same sentiment. And so uh, for me, listen, nothing I ever face on the ground is a shadow of what the people I have the privilege of meeting and whose stories I have the privilege of telling face. Uh, And I think it's hard to imagine. But the reality is that these women are part of a governance structure that has actually built a truly real and very fragile stability on the ashes of the ISIS fight. And what's fascinating, and the book really talks about this, is that women are everywhere. In every town they uh, leave, there's a co-head of male and a, and a female. So a man and a woman who run the civil council together. There are women's councils in every town. There are women judges who help handle cases that are sensitive, that are involving women. Uh, in the founding document that is recognized by nobody outside their uh, slice of terrain, but uh, is governing there, um, women are mentioned 13 times. Women have equal rights. Women have rights to economic uh, means, Uh, no child marriage, yes to girls education, no to dowry, all of these things uh, that would be far reaching anywhere in the world. Women have a right to represent, to be represented in the political bodies. Uh, They put women right at the center. Of all of this. And so for me, what was fascinating was to see women when you go get a security pass signed or all of the very mundane things you do when you report uh, from a place like Northeastern Syria, get your OKs, get your letter signed, watch cable TV with the official who's signing it for you, right? Um, you know, there were women everywhere, which you just don't see. And that struck me immediately. And the other thing I would say is I give them huge credit for the fact that actually your biggest Opponent when you're on the ground, of course, there is instability and fragility, but it's almost complacency because uh, the one thing that is so important for U.S. folks to know is that you never see the Americans. The Americans are like the Oz-like presence that you know exists somewhere, but you don't see them except for occasionally on convoys on the road. And so, while for me, you know, is a lot of sitting on your backside of traveling from northern Iraq to the border, another four hours across the border uh, and to your town, and then another four to seven hours to go from city to city or town to town in northeastern Syria, um, I've had such a, a privilege of working with an amazing team and really spending time with people who've seen so very much uh, and, and were willing to share that with me.
1: Thank you, Gail. I do want to touch on what you mentioned, uh, and it's about, uh embedding women's rights uh, within the law of the land, you could say. And can we talk a bit more about some of the struggles that they face in the sense of outlawing polygamy, discussing, uh, maybe going maybe a bit deeper into that. And what I do want to touch on as well is, you know, it's easy to write laws. It's tougher to enforce them and it's tougher to change the cultural mindset Could you maybe discuss a bit of how things have changed in the villages, how things have changed on the ground? Were there any, uh, I understand that a lot of these fighters have seen changes within their families, but has this affected other women? Has this affected women that weren't in battle, women that weren't part of these forces?
0: Yes. So you gave me a lot to answer here. So um, in 2019, 2018, 2019, I was in the office of Fauza Youssef, who's one of the politicians who's in the part of the story part of the Daughters of Koban. And she said, I said, wow, this is really hard what you're trying to do. And she looked at me, she said, yes, we're building a lake in the desert. And it doesn't happen overnight. And we will not change 5,000 years in seven. But what we can do is start. And they looked to the example of Tunisia to say that women who were part of a revolution must stand up then for their rights. And I said, did men tell you this is too much too soon? You know, all the things we hear in the U.S. Too much, too soon, too fast. We're not ready. She said, well, of course they did. You know, she looked at me like, come on, what a dumb question. She said, well, of course they said that to us. But we didn't care. If we don't do it now, when will we do it? And the fact that women were fighting ISIS, truly, room by room, there's a scene in the book where Roja goes and puts her gun through the wall and brushes up against the leg of an ISIS fighter. ISIS for them is not an abstraction. ISIS is the guy in the next room trying to kill them. And so those military gains were only important to those women because of the political gains. And as Naruz once said to me, we knew that if we showed we could lead in battle, we could govern in peace. And that is what they were after. And so when Faustus Yusuf said, of course men don't like it, so what? I thought that is a fascinating thing because truly... uh, A couple, maybe a half a year later, nine months later, uh, we were in Haseka in northeastern Syria, and our car broke down. And a group of women forces came and drove us back in their pickup trucks. And they drove us back in a pickup truck, three young women across the front. And from the back of the wind mirror, where we sometimes see air fresheners in the U.S., they had a picture of another young woman who had been killed fighting ISIS. And they were remembering their friend and driving with their friend's memory. And they go through a Syrian regime checkpoint, right? Because the regime is sort of an uneasy coexistence in certain towns. And they go through a regime checkpoint. They, they go, Nothing happens. They go through one of their checkpoints and they're all high-fiving all the other young women and they're all hugging. And, you know, I'm the only one thinking, this is like science fiction, right? Like, when do we see this? And what struck me that night as I was trying to figure out what was different was that we have never seen women anywhere more comfortable with power and less apologetic about owning it. And that stayed with me. And I really want readers to experience what that looks like and feels like.
1: That's amazing to hear. Uh, Truly amazing to hear. And uh, uh, I want to discuss, maybe uh, follow through with you uh, on Syria as well. Uh, One of my favorite poets is uh, Nizar Kobani, who's a Syrian poet. And uh, was also on the forefront of women's rights, and it happened because his sister committed suicide after she was forced to marry uh, someone she didn't love. And, and again, this is a theme that uh, you know, uh, with forced marriages. We do see that in your book with Oshilan, et cetera, and it's it's uh, unfortunately it's still prevalent uh, within uh, within the within the region. And it just uh, it gives us uh, it gives me at least so much hope to read the story about these women and how they're fighting this themselves. Uh, And in many cases, and what I want to touch on is that they are doing this themselves because what a lot of uh, viewers are wondering and what we're seeing is, you know, did we, and by we, I mean the United States government, just turn our backs on these women and walk away and leave them in between a rock and a hard place. Uh, We're seeing a multi-fronted attack on them. And maybe we could discuss this a bit more, and then I do have a bunch of follow-up questions on that.
0: Great. And I regularly say this, that there is much more hope in northeastern Syria than in northwest Washington. Even with all the setbacks, even with everything that happened with the Turkish-backed incursion in October of 2019, what struck me when I was in northeastern Syria in December of 2019 was how durable and enduring what they have built truly is. I went into northeastern Syria really expecting the worst, and my teammate, uh, who you'll see in a photo in the book Mustafa, I kept saying, "What about this checkpoint? What about that checkpoint? What about this city? What about that city?" He's like, "Same deal, same. Uh, you know, it's all, all looks the same, you know." And I said, "Really?" And he said, "Yeah." Now, I don't no, want to minimize at all the displacement and the loss of life from that. And in fact, I spent time with young women from the Arab community who were in a camp for the displaced, who were from uh, from Ta'abiyet in a Northeastern Syria who, uh, you know, I interviewed a 14-year-old girl who said, I don't know when I'm going back to class. I lost my home. I lost my friends. I lost my family. So I, I don't want to minimize that at all. But what strikes you is that what they have built, even in Raqqa, which is nominally controlled now by the Russians and the Syrian regime, there's a still the same civil councils, still the same women's councils, which you'll see at the opening of the Raqqa Women's Council in the book. Um, you know, all of this, has lasted. And at the same time, there's a moment where we see Rojda, and she has uh, been part of uh, leading the campaign with U.S. special operations to retake Raqqa from ISIS, a brutal fight. She has dedicated every day of her life, four years, to fighting ISIS, not just for the region, but certainly for the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world. And we've spent this evening with her in the book where she is with this Yazidi woman who was enslaved by ISIS and who with such power shares her story and helps share what she learned for those who are fighting ISIS so that they would understand who was where and what she knew. And we watch her go back to the same town where she was part of helping this woman who had been brutalized by ISIS get her way back to her family in Northern Iraq and now she has to go back to the same town to fight uh, against forces backed by a NATO ally. Now she's alone. And so I want readers to experience that moment, but I also want readers to understand this is about America's national security. You know, President Biden, this past few days, uh, said we are going to keep the pressure on ISIS. This is the force that took 10,000 losses in the fight against the Islamic State for the world. And women played a central part of that. And these women played a central part of that. And I hope you will be inspired truly by spending time with them and hearing their stories.
1: It's uh, truly a very inspiring story. And, uh, and, you know, I think to myself as well, uh, the courage that these women had. Uh I, I don't know if I could do what they've what done. and It's, it's really scary. Stories. I will say, having yeah.
0: been on the Raqqa front lines, I was definitely, you know, there's a moment in the opening of the book, in the prologue, where Clara, one of the commanders, who, for those of you who watch PBS NewsHour, she's in the segment that aired about the book last night. And Clara takes us to the front line. And I mean, I genuinely, of course I was nervous, right? We're in Kevlar, my whole team, we're in Kevlar and basically, you know, all this. And literally Clara has the green, Paisley, you know, kind of green, not Paisley, green flowered Curtis scarf. And she's walking around, that's it. And she's walking around like she is just at the office for another day, pointing at this car bomb that's still smoking. Like, can you believe they're targeting us? Can you believe they do this every day? And my crew and I was like, it's still smoking, (laughs) you know? Wow. And you realize that for them, this has become their daily job. That drive to the front line has become their commute to work. And it's so important for readers to know they are not superhuman. They're not any different from you and me, but they were called upon by the world to answer a threat that came to their doorstep. And for them, it was very important that it was clear that women were saying no more.
1: I do want to touch on one part where you just said, and maybe the dangers of being desensitized to this violence. And are these uh, women or communities over there are there anything uh, or any programs they're doing or implementing right now to actually help people heal it's not easy and we understand how in the United States when our soldiers came back PTSD et cetera, and especially right now what's happening in Syria are there any programs are there any is there anything on the ground that these committees are actually working on to help these people return and maybe come back to a normal life eventually when
0: so yeah, I've spent so a excited. lot of time in the military community and also uh, for this the second book I did, Ashley's War, which is how this whole story started, uh, was a soldier from Ashley's War uh, who was working in Syria, was deployed to Syria. Um, the, and I will tell you the big difference is that in northeastern Syria, you cannot escape the war. There is a deep sense of community for those who are fighting. It is not some faraway war where the reality is that less than 1% of the United States has fought 100% of its wars for two decades, with very few people really having their lives affected. It's very different in Northeast Syria. You drive down the road, and from the lampposts are smiling photos of young women and young men who were lost in battle defending the town. You never escape how much sacrifice was made for those towns, and I think that community spirit is what is deeply different. Because in the U.S., spend time with folks who who uh, serve this country and who sacrifice for this country, and often you see many people say, "Oh, thank you for your service," and then they don't want to ask anything else. They don't really want to know anything else, and they certainly don't want to engage with the wars uh, that the U.S. is undertaking. So, I, I just want to say that I think that is a very large difference is that spirit of solidarity and of people being in it together.
1: It's very true. It's uh, Unfortunately, it's one of those situations where uh, they cannot escape it. Uh, I do wanna touch on this within, within. so just to make it clear to everybody within the region, there's many different sects, many different religions within that. And uh, it's uh, uh, my first questions about that is, we do hear a lot about the Kurdish fighters have these women influenced other religions to form their own groups and uh, form their all-women all groups to fight ISIS, to implement uh, new norms within their own cultures as well?
0: So uh, two things on that. And, and I know that the book is largely about the Kurdish women, but there are women from across communities who are very much a part of this story. And that was very important, both for me uh, and for them. And that is so, it's crucial. Because I remember, so we were there for PBS NewsHour. I figure in San Francisco, you have a lot of PBS fans uh, among you. And uh, we were there for PBS NewsHour in the summer of 2017. And there's this moment, I think we actually took it out of an earlier draft, but it always stayed with me. So we go to interview this young woman who has just spent the whole day fighting the Islamic State. And it's hot. And we're all, there are literally like uh 15 young women in smiley face socks, fatigues, braids. Um some with uh, Timex watches on their wrists and all of them with their AK-47 standing at attention against the wall for them to be ready at a moment's notice. And I looked at her, she said, we're writing our own history now. We're doing this not just for ourselves, but for women across the region and across communities. And I said, well, in the Middle East, isn't that a very hard place to start? And she looked at me as like, oh my gosh, you are a really dumb American. <laughs> you know, you what a question that you just asked me. Of course, so you know, and she looked at me like, what kind of question is that? Because of course it's hard. We're from here. We know how hard it is, but it wouldn't be worth anything if it weren't hard. And I will tell you about a young woman from the Christian community that stayed with me and I thought about so often. I spent the day with her, and she told me that when she, so ISIS had kidnapped Christians in the Habar Valley, more than 200 people. I mean, you can't quite imagine, even when I say that, how terrifying for the men of the Islamic State to come in your house at night, round you up at gunpoint. Uh, you know, you still have your cell phones for some of them and just the terror that that inspires because of your faith. So ISIS had come uh, to the Christian community. This young woman had seen that, had watched this play, and, and she said, no, I'm going to be part of this uh, women's protection force from the Christian community that it's going to defend our neighborhoods. And her parents say, no way, you're smart. You're promising future. No way go to school. And she says, no, I, I really think this is important. And then her parents go to church and people come up to them at church and say, we're so proud of your daughter and what she's doing for our community. And that starts to spread because there's this whole, you know, Gina Davis and many others have talked frequently about the notion of, If you can see it, you can be it. The importance of seeing people who look like you. And that's what happens, right? Other young women see them come back to their neighborhoods, come back to their communities. And this is across neighborhoods. Um, One of the most powerful days of interviewing, and the readers of, of Daughters of Kobani will spend time with these young women too, are the young women from the Arab communities in Raqqa who lived under ISIS and who later joined the Women's Protection Forces. And I sat with Rojda one day uh, in the town of Topka uh, on the river and spent the day just asking them what that was like. And I could have been there, Eddie, for days. Every one of these young women had a story. One of them had read uh, Egyptian poets only for three years, hadn't left the house, but really spoken paragraphs because that was her education. Right. Uh, Another told me of being arrested by ISIS. Um, because her wrist had shown when she crossed the street, and ISIS had arrested her and her father, and said the only way she could be free is if she married one of the brothers. And then there was a woman who is in the book, who is somebody I think about when I promise you nearly daily for her grace and her courage and her example. And I was asking women, you know, what their stories were. And it turns out this was a young woman whose brother joined ISIS and forced her to marry an ISIS fighter. She tries to divorce him. She tries to leave him. Her brother keeps sending her back to this man. She ends up escaping. Finally is brutalized by ISIS in the town of Idlib and the readers will follow this. And then she comes back and she has the, the U S backed forces of whom the women in this story are a part Say, where, you know, we'll take you home, where do you want to go? And she said, No, I, I want to join the women's protection unit." And I couldn't imagine the courage that it took for her to do it. And so I asked her, you know, why in the world? How do you have this courage to do this? Because I feel like I wouldn't even move from bed if I had endured, oh, that you survived. And she said, Why should we let this go unanswered? This is my way of saying this should not happen. And it was that hearing this young woman say that that makes you realize this is not about communities. And in fact, the Americans used to say to me, oh, you know, ask people outside Kurdish communities if this matters. And it's not that everybody's singing Kumbaya and holding hands, it's that women have an inherent sense of dignity wherever you are in the world, regardless of community. And so I would ask Arab women in Raqqa so is this a Kurdish project or is this an American experiment? And they would be so insulted by the question. So who tells you, you know, I've always been strong. I've always spoken out in my family. And my mother-in-law is the reason why I'm here today at the opening for the Rockwell Women's Council. And so I think it's so overstated that um, this is any one community where women want to have their own voice and exercise their own agency. It is the universal quest for human dignity.
1: That's very true, and I do want to emphasize the dangers that uh, these women have faced, and especially from the Syrian regime as well. I, you know, you could look back at the eighties of what the regime did at Hama, where they massacred tens of thousands of people, and, and and I think sometimes this is something that's very tough for people who are thousands of miles away to truly comprehend the dangers and the struggles that people over there face uh, every day, and uh, you know, knowing that. Again, in Arabic, we call them mukhabarat, which are the uh, intelligence. You know, if you say anything against the Syrian regime, the mukhabarat would come and take your father uh, or your brother away. And this is something that's so foreign for uh, us over here and a lot of people around the world to truly uh, comprehend the dangers uh, that they're facing. And as you mentioned also with ISIS, it's uh, the brutality, the rape, what they did to the Yazidi women, selling them as slaves, which is. Uh, Again, it's as if you're watching a movie from 2000 BC uh, uh, about uh, Romans selling slaves within that region. So, so this is something that's truly uh, uh, just uh, incomprehensible and very tough to discuss. Uh, I, I do, I do want to touch on this. When you talk about the region, when you talk about your experience there, I do see this like uh, uh, the smile you have of experiencing this um, and being able to be with these women. Do you have one moment where it just will live with you forever? Where it's something, some moment where you had a conversation with one of these women, something you haven't mentioned already, where you would like to discuss or share with our audience?
0: Yeah, there were two moments. One, I want to talk about the humanity, mid-in-humanity, because a danger of telling stories like this is that people say, oh, that's them over there, right? I would never be that brave. None of these women thought they would be that brave, but they were. Because they're like so many women in our own communities all around, right? The Bay Area fighting every day, protesting, just giving talks, you know, mobilizing people for what's right. And so I, I really do want us to, these are daughters, sisters, friends, right? And, and there's a moment I had where I just, I was interviewing Azima, who the Americans before I even met her said, you must meet her. Like you, she is one of the most... Colorful, I think was the word that they used, just because she, she's such good fun and also such a daring spirit who never takes no for an answer. And even in the darkest moments of the battle for Kobani, when truly they were backed into maybe a block or two, and it was very clear that this town could fall at any moment to the Islamic State and that the black flag would be raised over Kobani, uh, she never lost faith. And she would always say, you know, Kobani will win. Kobani will not fall. And actually, many people thought she was mad, right, that there had been no example to that point of any town not falling to the Islamic State. And here it was going to be, you know, what What? what I this is not my language, but what one, you know, th- paper called, you know, the country bumpkins of Kobani were not going to be the people who handed ISIS its first defeat. And yet that is what turns out to happen. And in part, because it's the spirit of people like Azima. So there's this amazing moment. And I later spoke to both of them where she was telling me about her sister, because you have to remember technology, San Francisco, right? Technology shapes all of our lives. And Kobani was a town where the battle was fought on YouTube and on WhatsApp and on cell phones throughout. And in the middle, so Azima is there and she's leading men and women in battle. It's Very difficult. There is no place that is not a front line in this town. They're low, they some days they don't even have enough bullets to get through the day. And she's in there, she's planning for battle, and her phone rings and she picks it up thinking it's her commander, but it's her sister. And her sister's like, How are you? (laughs) You know, how are you doing? She says, Didn't I tell you not to call me? Didn't I tell you that, you know, I would call you when this was all over? We're trying to fight a battle here and you keep calling. Do you need me to come? And sit on your sofa and hold your hand and tell you everything's going to be okay? Or do you need me to win this battle? And I laughed so hard because who doesn't know that moment, right? Your family's, and she knew, right? That if she her mother, this is another moment with Roche, the same thing. Roche is in the middle of the battle for Kobani and her phone rings and she knows it's her mother, but she has to answer because if she doesn't answer her mother, her mother will keep calling. Or she'll follow somebody else in her family, or she'll tell everybody that Rose has been killed, because now she's not picking up her phone. So and her mother had never wanted her to join the women's protection forces anyway. She thought it was all Azima's fault and it all she blamed her constantly for, for convincing her daughter that this was okay. So she picks up the phone and she just puts it up so that everybody her mother can hear the bullets whizzing by, and her mother starts crying and wailing out loud, right? And so it's it's that that really the heart of these women who also had families, who had people who were thinking of them every day and worrying about them and wondering about them, who uh, whose families never expected that this would be their future. And I think I, I later convinced Azima to introduce me to her sister and I interviewed them both and made them recount the story. And her sister was actually much funnier because her sister was like, yeah, I remember you yelling at me. And Azima was like, oh, I didn't yell at you that much. And she said, no, no, I did. But she said, and then she paused and she said, but at least I knew you were alive.
1: Well, no that, that's uh, uh well, uh, I do want to say maybe it's a Middle Eastern thing, but uh, it's part of our culture as well. if I don't answer my parents' phone, I have several other relatives calling and uh, you know immediately as if something uh, really horrible happened. so uh, it's uh, I understand the, her frustration on that point. I do want to turn a bit into geopolitics and just with the remaining time we have discuss uh, the region and what's going on. Uh, I do have one question, and it's about the future of Syria. We, we look at Iraq and we look at Lebanon, and what we have over there is a sectarian regime where uh, where each religion is given a certain post. And what's happening is religion is embedded within the country. And in many cases, people are more loyal to their certain sect. Than to the country as a whole and which which in my opinion personal opinion, it causes a lot of friction and a lot of animosity in Syria, we do see uh, similar divides in which you know we have a large population of Kurds, we have Alawites, we have Christians, and we have uh, Arab Sunnis, you could say because in essence, a lot of the Kurds are Sunnis, but in different identity do you Do you see that as a solution to the war in syria uh, some sort of you know, modern sykes in which there's a federalist uh, country divided into, into such uh, 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 regions? Or do you foresee a better future for there, maybe a political solution in which there is some sort of compromise?
0: You know, to answer your question, I would really turn to the diplomats who are part of the Daughters of Kobani. Brett McGurk, who was very much a part of this and is now back in the White House for the Biden administration. Uh, Ambassador Roebuck, who is such an important part of this story, a U.S. diplomat, who, uh, career foreign service, who has seen a great deal in his career, and who wrote this beautiful memo that ends up in the New York Times, uh, that is a part of the story about how the U.S. actually, um, in many ways caused a great deal of problems for the Syrian Kurds, for these women by placing them onto the global stage and in some ways putting a bullseye on their backs, because now they were backed by the Americans, because they were the fighting force that the Americans trusted to take terrain and hold terrain and defeat the physical caliphate of the Islamic State. There is no way that there's a military end to the Syrian civil war. But if you, the book goes all the way back to 2011, when the Obama administration was saying the time has come for Assad to step aside. Bashar al Assad has now outlasted Obama, now outlasted Trump. And we will see with the next administration. He's not going anywhere, it looks like at the moment, other than maybe Moscow or Tehran for day trips. And the folks who are part of the story say that what they're asking for. Is a seat at the table in the decision about their country's future. And it really, you know, with the Biden speech recently, also the deputy UN ambassador this past week, both reiterated their commitment to both Iraq and to the fight against ISIS. And I think it will be up to this new administration fairly soon to decide where it stands and how it stands with this partner who has fought ISIS on behalf of the world. And uh, I think the Few question about Syria's future has always been written in invisible ink that no one yet has been able to decipher. But for the sake of all those who sacrificed for it, we must hope for a peaceful and diplomatic solution that allows people to live with dignity and with uh, some measure of uh, gains that they have fought for protected. Uh,
1: that's uh, to your point of uh, Bashar outlasting everybody. It was one of those scenarios where I remember in 2011 thinking, "Oh, it's going to be over soon." And they've uh, that that regime has been able to uh, stay in power through their, you know, and commit uh, countless atrocities as well in the battles over there. What what we're seeing right now, what I'm reading a lot is that is there, and I want to get your opinion on this. Is there a resurgence of ISIS, but, is it, but in the sense of small pockets where they're fighting more guerrilla warfare, and how how are the Kurdish forces over there preparing for that?
0: So there's a scene at the end of The Daughters of Kobani where Mitch Harper, who's a U.S. special operations soldier who is worried about bequeathing the war against extremism to his children, and who has just enormous respect for these women and the men of this fighting force. He's in Raqqa watching the fight and he's really worried because he doesn't see America's will to help a peace endure after the fight. He who has given his entire adult life to fighting America's wars is thinking, where is the handoff? Where is the handoff to stabilization? Where is the handoff to diplomacy? Where is the handoff that we give from the military side? And we follow him as he can kind of walk through that moment. And the thing is, as he says it, as I say it frequently, it is much easier to slay a terrorist than to kill an ideology. And the appeal of ISIS does not go away simply because of the physical terrain they control does. And that is what we're seeing now, right? So ISIS has taken advantage. I wrote a piece for CNN at the beginning of COVID uh, about ISIS taking advantage of the spaces, right? Because that's what they do. Uh, so both in chunks of Iraq uh, and the Iraqi security forces are working very hard to crack down uh, on this. Uh, and, and in fact, NATO is now going to expand its mission there on the advise and assist uh, mission to support Iraqi security forces to fight ISIS, among other th- things. And the Syrian Kurds and the Syrian Democratic Forces are continuing to face ISIS in Deir ez they're regrouping, although it's very hard because think about this. the These women, Nuruz, Rojda, uh, Azima, Znareen, they're part of the U.S.-backed forces who now face the threat of Turkish incursion, the Russians coming at any moment, the Syrian regime coming at any moment, and ISIS resurgence. And they continue to hold thousands, I believe it's about 2,000 plus, ISIS fighters who no one will take back. And I've gone and seen this myself twice in whole camp, the wives and children of the Islamic State who no one else Wants. So not only are they facing all of this, but they're also holding for the world uh, the problem that no one else wants to deal with. So an international problem requires an international solution. And I deeply hope, in fact, one of the women who's part of the Women's Protection Forces leads security at Whole Camp. And she fought ISIS in Manbij. And I said, Did you ever think that your job would be to keep safe and do as much as you could to provide security for the wives and the children of the Islamic State? And she said, No. I never in a million years thought that, but it's my job and we need the world to pay attention to getting us more resources because we're doing this not just for us, but for everyone.
1: It's uh, amazing uh, what what they had to endure and what they're doing. Uh, I do want to touch, you spoke a bit about Turkey. I do want to touch on uh, your opinion of how the Biden administration needs to confront Erdogan. And on that note, are the Kurds also being used as a tool like Hafez al-Assad used them before, in which the Syrian regime is uh, using them as well against uh, uh, Turkey?
0: So I was in uh, northeastern Syria in December of 2019, and I went to interview Muslim Abdi, the head of the Syrian Democratic Forces. And he is running this sort of <laughs> very fragile United Nations there, where the Russians come in, The you know, they're having distance talks with the regime, um, they're dealing with the Americans very closely, right? There's still a very close relationship with the Americans despite everything that's happened because the level of trust on the individual level was so enormous that even when everything happened and the cataclysmic events of October 2019 occurred, there was such a well of trust and respect that, yes, it was depleted, but it wasn't erased. And that relationship remains very, very strong uh, even till now. And so there's is this, you know, you have this non-state actor who's balancing these nation-state uh, powers, really working to figure out a future that is better for the next generation. And when it comes to Turkey, I have always believed, as uh, Ambassador Roebuck writes and has written, that there is only a diplomatic solution. I believe deeply in U.S. leadership, and I believe that if the U.S. really puts diplomatic muscle into it, There were talks recently enough in 2014-2015 between Syrian Kurds and Turkey that there is enough room for the U.S. to keep its NATO ally on side and not in the arms of Russia, while also respecting uh, what the sacrifices have been made by the partner that continues even as we speak to keep the pressure on ISIS and to deal for the rest of the world with the remnants of the Islamic State.
1: Thank you, Gail. Would you have uh, time just for one last note? And I do want to give you this this time for yourself to maybe uh, say a few words on a personal level and uh, just maybe end it with a bit of hope for everybody about the region.
0: I will say that uh, I, I really hope that you will be inspired. I hope you'll be moved by these women. You know, they are people who ended up being the force that stopped the Islamic State, and they're deeply proud of what they've done. But none of them thought they did anything extraordinary. And none of them thought that they were doing it for anything other than this, which is the next generation. And at the end of the book, I spend time with Nauruz, who you will have spent time with throughout the story as she uh, leads first on her own, and then with the Americans, um, the fight to stop ISIS. And I asked her, What do you want a girl born 20 years from now to know? And she stopped and she said, I want them to know we did this for them. I want them to know that this happened. And so much of women's lives is not captured, is not remembered, is not visible. And this is a war story, a friendship story, a story of love, a story of family, a story of courage that is deeply universal. And I truly hope you will be moved by spending time with the women who are part of this story.
1: Thank you, Gail. And I do want to add that I loved reading your book and it truly uh, made me feel connected to these women. And it's something that we needed someone to shed light on. And I want to thank you on that. And I want to congratulate you as well. Uh, If I'm not wrong, there was a bidding for your book and it will be a TV series or movie. So congratulations on that as well. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 117 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear
1: thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what
0: you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.